Good morning, beloved. I thought this morning, as we come to the conclusion of this series, that that little video clip would be appropriate. It's my desire and my prayer that today will be somewhat of a crescendo on this series. You know what a crescendo is. It's a musical note. It's an orchestral movement that reaches a peak of intensity when all of the orchestra members are Singularly, singularly focused on an event that takes place, whether in volume or just the fact that they're all playing together in a unified fashion. A crescendo is this, this mountaintop experience during a symphony presentation. We've been on a, a road together, haven't we, the last few weeks. Pastor Mike has led us in a magnificent study on the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if your bell hasn't been rung, I'm afraid your clapper may be broken. If your wood hasn't been lit on fire, it is probably wet. It's been a beautiful series to contemplate the truths that have been put before us. Um, and today we come to the conclusion of that series, the ascension of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> when Pastor Mike first asked me to speak speak on that subject, I thought initially, well, that's going to be kind of an over and done, quick and delivered sermon. You know, we just turn to Acts and read the part where the, Jesus took his disciples to the Mount of Olives and they were gathered together and they look up and there he went, and over and done. And as I thought a little bit more about it, I came to the realization that it may be, in fact, the ascension of Jesus Christ may be one of the most significant parts of, the, of his whole life. The ramifications, the meaning, what transpired after his ascension are so important for us to consider and to know about that it's certainly worthy of our time together this morning as well as additional study. I thought back upon my whole church experience, and I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon specifically about the ascension of Christ. And that was kind of curious, because after I realized how significant this is, and how overwhelmingly important it is in the life of the believer, that we probably should consider it more often than we do. So as we, we scratch the surface and crack open the book this morning to look at a few things, I hope it will whet your appetite, possibly, to consider it more, to understand the implications of the ascension of Jesus Christ more. In fact, what I want to do this morning is rather simple. I just want to look at two aspects of the ascension of Christ, just two. I think we can remember two things coming and going. The first one is the effects of Christ's ascension upon the people that he left here on earth. And then secondly, the effect of the ascension on people that are in heaven or going to heaven. So the effects of the ascension on earth and the effects of the ascension on heaven. That kind of covers the bases, doesn't it? That's, that's the whole of existence. Either we're here or we're not here. or We're, we're gone to eternity. So the, the, the ascension affects the whole of our life and the whole of our eternal life. So it is a rather important thing to think about and to contemplate. I would like to look a little bit at, at in depth in the book of the Gospel of Mark this morning. So I would invite you to turn to Mark, John, excuse me, John chapter 14. We're going to look at a few verses, just 
plucked them out of uh, a, a series of, of conversations that Jesus was having with his followers and look at their significance. First, again, of how Jesus' ascension relates to the followers, his followers that were left here on earth. John's gospel, as you know, is, is unique among all four gospels. It's not even considered one of the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered the synoptics synoptic gospels because they more or less tell a very similar story. Some of the encounters that Jesus had, the miracles he did, his sayings and sermons are recorded in those gospels in varying ways in, with various details. But you come to the gospel of John and it's from start to finish almost entirely different. Yes, of course, it contains the passion narrative, his, his death, his crucifixion and resurrection, but the conversations that he has, that Jesus has with people, the miracles that he does, and the things he says are only unique, wholly unique to John's gospel. So I would invite you to look at some of the uniqueness as we explore this in John. In fact, the, the chapters in John that I'd like to take a look at this morning, chapters 13 through 17, this information... The conversations that Jesus is having with his disciples, as recorded here in this gospel, are again completely unique to John's gospel. They're not repeated, they're not, they're not talked about in any of the other parts of scripture. These chapters contain a session of teaching that Jesus had with his disciples. They were gathered, remember last week we walked through the events of Holy Week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion on Friday and resurrection on Sunday. On Thursday, the disciples gathered in the upper room and had a Passover meal. And after that Passover was done, Jesus engaged in this lengthy conversation with them, telling them about things that were going to happen, things coming around the corner to prepare them for these events. So that's what's contained in these four chapters in John's Gospel. And if you were to look at these four chapters, there's something, there's a number of things that are repeated but one of the things that's repeated over and over again is Jesus makes the comment, I'm going away. You won't see me in a little while. I must go. And it was perplexing to his disciples. They didn't understand what he was talking about. They thought, well, he's just off on another one of these tangents with this, th these ideas that we don't understand and maybe we'll have a chance to have him explain it to us. But he was preparing his disciples for his departure, and they weren't ready for it at all. So in chapter 14, verse 1, a very familiar verse to us, he says this, don't let your hearts be distressed. Don't let them be anxious. Don't let them be troubled. I don't want you to be full of anxiety, he says to his disciples, because I must go away. If you believe in God, believe also in me. There are many dwelling places. There are many rooms. There are many mansions in some of your older translations. In my Father's house. Otherwise, I would have told you because I'm going away to make ready a place for you. If you fall in the general flow of thought in evangelicalism, you probably think, well, Jesus is obviously talking about heaven here. He has to go away to heaven to prepare a place, a dwelling place, a house, a mansion for his followers. That's our 
eternal reward. When we get to heaven, we're going to have a mansion next to the streets of gold, and we'll be living in Bill Gates' establishment. That's kind of the common understanding of what Jesus is saying here. And he may very well be going in that direction. But I'm going to come back to the list, if I can remember. Uh, I didn't do it first service, but I'll try to remember to come back to this, circle back around, and maybe give you an alternate meaning of what Jesus might be saying here. But the point at this point is that Jesus is telling his disciples, I don't want you to be perplexed or troubled or full of anxiety because I'm going. I have something to do when I leave. Don't be distressed. And Philip responds to this statement. He said, Jesus, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. That's all that we really want. Show us the Father and we will be there in this not anxious state. And Jesus responds, he says, have I been with you this whole time and still you don't understand? And Jesus repeats again something that he has repeated throughout John's gospel. He says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. If you believe in me, you believe in the Father that there was an identification that Jesus was making with God, his heavenly Father, repetitively throughout this gospel. And it was a necessary point of identification. Jesus was on a, a, a mission of revealing who he was. And not only who he was, but why he was able to do what he did. He made a very important statement in the chapter 8, verse 58 of John's gospel. He was confronted by the Pharisees. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Yes, there was great significance in the tenses of those verbs. I am, present tense. And every Jew understood immediately what Jesus was saying. He was making a reference back to Moses in Exodus when he was standing before the burning bush and being commissioned by Jehovah God to be the deliverer of Israel. And Moses said, okay, I'll take this message back, but the people are going to ask me, who sent me? What's your name? And Jehovah God said, tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. It was the name of God that the Jews so reverenced that they wouldn't say it. They wouldn't speak it. They wouldn't write it. Yahweh was the best and the closest that they came to, to spelling it. They left out the vowels and only put the consonants. Yahweh, we don't know if the way that we pronounce it is accurate or not because we don't have any rendition of what it was because it was such a holy utterance that Jehovah God gave to Moses and Moses related to the people that they wouldn't, the scribes wouldn't write it in its entirety. Yahweh sent me. I am sent me, Moses said. So Jesus comes on the scene and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews immediately knew what he was saying. He was making a re relational association with Jehovah God, Yahweh of the Old Testament. I am. And they took up stones to stone him. He then went on in seven instances in the book of John recorded for us of different I am things. He said, I am the good shepherd. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. There was no mistake with what Jesus was doing by making these things. The word I am was so significant, and then he filled it in with a different figure of speech. But his followers and the audience knew what he was saying. He was making a relational association between himself and Jehovah God of the Old Testament. We were identified in some way, I am. That's why he could say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. If you believe in me, you believe in the Father. If you've received me, you've received the Father. And he walked in that relational association. John records another statement that Jesus made in this chapter 14 of his gospel. Look in verse 10. He's telling his disciples again, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I am, there's that saying again, but there's another, the little word in. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Not next to, not beside, not along the way, but in, positionally in. He's Jesus is identifying himself in such a relationship that he says that there is a symbiotic in the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. It's not just an association by theory or mental assent or just rational thought. That there was a spiritual, relational significance to Jesus saying, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. There was a fundamental and necessary fact of identification that Jesus made that affected his life and ministry. And it was in, inseparable to what Jesus was saying and what he was doing, his relationship and his association with God the Father. Now, if you're a thinking theologian, you're thinking, well, am I presenting this Unitarian position, this Unitarian idea of God's nature, that Jesus and his Father are so one that there's no distinctions at all between the two? No, I'm not saying that nor implying that. You will understand that Jesus, when he was on the cross, he uttered, My Father, my God, my Father, why have you forsaken me? There was a separation at that point between Jesus and his heavenly Father. He taught his disciples to pray, Start, our Father who art in heaven. And he said, he submitted himself in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was praying before his passion that he would, this cup would be removed from him, but not my will but yours be done. So there was obviously a separation between the two. So there are distinctions between these individuals in the Godhead called the Trinity that we believe in and define. But understand, please understand this identification relationship that Jesus promoted and proclaimed about his relationship with his heavenly Father. We are one. He is in me and I am in him. And it affected his life and ministry. Flip down in chapter 14 to verse 20 for another incredible statement. Jesus says, you will know, talking to his disciples again, you will know that at that time or in that day that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am am in you. Holy mackerel. This was completely new. The disciples had never heard anything like this. They had heard for the last three years Jesus promoting and 
identifying his relationship with his heavenly father. But now Jesus is saying there's coming a day, there's going to be a time when you will be included in this relationship. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, and you will be in me, and I will be in you. That little word in, it's not insignificant. It is incredibly significant. I will be in you. Well, what happened between verse 10 and verse 20 to say Jesus' identification with his Father, and now in verse 20, he's saying that there is coming a day when you as my followers will be included in this identity. That happens in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Start in verse 15. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, another helper, another counselor. The word parakletos, it's a Greek word that we don't have a direct English translation for because it's so colorful and bereft with meaning that there's a number of, of words that are used in different translations. And so we need to add to our English word to make this concept of what Jesus is saying a little bit more complete. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, counselor, and he will be with you forever. It hasn't happened yet. It's something in the future that will happen. But there's something about the Holy Spirit coming that will identify, will unify the believer in this relationship with God the Son and God the Father. When did that happen? When was that going to happen? His disciples were just kind of clueless, as I would have been, as you would have been. But when it came to the day of Christ's ascension, he said some other things about it. Acts, turn to Acts chapter 1. I like to hear the wrestling of pages. That means you've brought your scriptures with you and you're turning those pages. I like to hear those pages turn. Acts chapter 1. Uh, let's start in verse 4. And while he was with them, he, Jesus, was with them, his followers, he declared, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait there for what my father promised, which you heard about from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had gathered together, they began to ask him, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He told them, you are not permitted to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the furthest parts of the earth. And after he had said this, while they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And as they were still staring into the sky while he was going, suddenly two men in white clothing stood near them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you saw him go. Verse 5, he says, Jesus says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That verse, that phrase, that word, baptized with the Holy Spirit, has been misunderstood, misaligned, misinterpreted, um, and no doubt our universal experience of understanding this concept has been a variety of explanations, what it means. 
The word baptized in English is actually a transliteration of the Greek word. It's essentially, it's the same word in Greek as it is in English. It hasn't been translated. And so we need to come up with maybe a word that would translate what is meant by the word baptized. It wasn't a particularly um, spiritual or theological term. It was a common word that was used in a number of associations in that time, in that period. The idea is something like this. If I had a bucket of red paint and I have a piece of wood, I take that piece of wood and immerse it in that red paint and pull it out. That wood has now been baptized with the red paint. What does that mean? Well, the characteristics of the red paint are now true of this piece of wood. The, the things that are most important about that red paint have now been transferred, as it were, to this piece of wood. It looks the same. It has the same chemical composition. It has the same durability. It has the same longevity. It has been baptized into that paint. I think the word identification is a great interpretive word for baptize. That wood has now been identified with this paint. That paint's characteristics are now true of this piece of wood, whereas before they weren't. Jesus says, that's a great idea about this coming Holy Spirit. He, when he comes, this counselor, this helper, this advocate, the paracletos, when he comes, he will take you, my followers, my believers, the ones that trust in me. He will take you and identify you with me in such a significant way that I can say that I am in you, you in me, and I'm in the Father. That's how the believer is added to that relationship of identification. The Spirit has, is, at this point is going to baptize, is going to identify His followers into what we would call the body of Christ. In ten days after Christ's ascension, Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit came in the upper room, and you can read that in Acts chapter 2, the next chapter. But the events of Acts chapter 1 are still looking forward to, are still anticipating what's going to happen when believers are baptized into Christ are identified with Christ like that piece of wood into the bucket of paint. The characteristics now of that paint of Christ are now transferred, identified with his believers, his followers. 214 times the Apostle Paul will make the statement in Christ or in him or in the beloved or something similar to that. There's that little word. Every time you see that little prepositional phrase, in, look at its significance. Look at what it means, that there is a fundamental and necessary identification that believers have with Jesus Christ that is necessary for our spiritual life and ministry, that we can't exist, we can't function, we're not intended to live the Christian life as an orphan, as a non-baptized individual. It's not possible. But now, in the church age, which inaugurated in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit came in a universal fashion, and everyone who has ever believed or ever will believe in Jesus Christ is baptized into Christ's body, is identified with Jesus Christ in that form of identification that he says, I am in you, and you are in me. Not next to, not above, not below, not just thinking about, but in a spiritual reality that exists in. Jesus is ever present. His reality, his spirit is in us as a believer. 
that could only happen after Jesus ascended. It was God the Father's divine plan of providence that Jesus had to go in order for the Holy Spirit to come. That's the way that it worked. I don't know why it did, but that was the plan. Jesus had to go. The Holy Spirit came 10 days later and baptized all of his followers into the body of Christ. Well, as you read through the New Testament epistles, you'll see language that initially seems a little strange. But put it in the context of our identification with Christ and see if it makes any more sense. Turn to Romans chapter 6 with me. Romans chapter 6. Paul makes some astounding statements in these few chapters. He kind of repeats a few things, and I would encourage you to, to read this section of Romans. But look at chapter 6, verse, starting in verse 3. Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be united in the likeness of his resurrection. You see what the apostle is saying here? That when Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was buried, you were buried. When Jesus rose from the grave, you rose from the grave. When Jesus ascended and was seated, you were ascended and seated. There is this association because I am in Christ and Christ is in me. What is true of Christ now becomes true of me. That's an astounding thought, brothers and sisters. That's why Paul can say, we have the righteousness of Christ. How did we get it? Because we were buried with him, we were raised with him in newness of life, and Jesus can now, we're baptized into him, and the characteristics of Jesus are now the characteristics of us. His righteousness, his acceptance before God the Father, the payment of his sin in full, that's also true of us. Look in Ephesians chapter 2. few books to the right, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read a few verses starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. There's the picture again. We were so identified with Christ, we were so united with him in our identification that we were buried with him, we were raised with him, and we ascended with him. Is that just theory? I mean, what, I, I, what difference does that make in my Christian life? Our sins were completely atoned for because of our identification with his burial and crucifixion. Our sins, the power to defeat sin came with with our identification with Christ in his resurrection. And ultimately, our ability to alleviate the presence of sin comes because of our identification with Christ in his ascension. It's just not a 
theory. It's just not good theology that there is a spiritual reality that is at play within your spirit and within your soul. And the basis of your forgiveness, the basis of your righteousness, the basis of your acceptance before God the Father is because of your identification with Jesus Christ and the baptism of the Spirit puts you in His body and His body in yours, and now you have the right to say, I am forgiven. I have the righteousness of God. That's what happened. Jesus died, we died. Jesus was buried, we were buried. Jesus rose, we rose. Jesus ascended, we ascended. Jesus was seated, we were seated. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul could say, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. <laughs> we're a new creation in Christ. We're not the same. The apostles weren't the same. They didn't behave the same. Their ministry wasn't the same. Their outlook wasn't the same. Their ability to perform in God's kingdom wasn't the same. It was transformed in, from Acts chapter 2 onward. This is the reality for us as believers on earth. Because of Christ's ascension, he was able then to send the Holy Spirit back to earth and the ministry of the, of the Holy Spirit was to baptize believers, followers that have trusted in Christ and place them spiritually in the body of Christ so that we are the things that are now true about Christ are true about us as followers of Jesus Christ. Life is different. It's never been that way before the ascension, but the ascension made that possible. Not only is life on earth for Christ's followers different because of the ascension. When Jesus went to heaven, he seated himself. God the Father seated him at the right hand of his throne. That's figurative, poetic language to say that Jesus was finally restored to a place of full authority. His work on earth was accepted and completed. It was over and done when he was seated. Scripture is clear that Jesus rose bodily. His spirit is not the only thing that went with him. He rose bodily, and he retains his body for eternity. We will see Jesus' body. We will see the nail prints. We will see the spear hole. We will see the wounds that he suffered. His body will be visible to us. Paul says, absent with the body, when we die, psh, we're translated, we're present with the Lord. We will see him face to face. And if you think of, just think for a moment, what, what picture comes into mind as you think of heaven? What is heaven going to be like? What will we be doing? What will we be thinking? Where will we go? Where will we be able to go? What will we do? What will occupy our time? Many of our conceptions of heaven have been skewed and, and erroneously planted within our brains. From the pictures of fat angels with harps on clouds to streets of gold that, you know, we just are there to look at. Or Some of that, <laughs> there may be a monicum of truth in some of those images. But if you read the pictures of heaven in John's Revelation, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 21, he explains this picture in the throne room of heaven. 
where God the Father is on a throne, a majestic throne, surrounded by myriads and myriads of angels and of 24 elders on other thrones, surrounded by myriads and myriads of saints and the throngs from every tribe and every nation and every language and every from history is there present. There's a picture of heaven that, you, that, that warrant a great deal of thought and contemplation. I used to think, and maybe you do as well, that once we get there, once we're translated to our eternal state, that we will be in a state of, of absolute perfection, that we'll know everything, that we'll have full knowledge, that we'll have full understanding, that everything that God has ever revealed and everything about His character and nature will become part of our own intellectual ability and our own theological theological base of understanding. I don't think that's true. It will be a perfect place. It will be a place without sin or sadness or sorrow. That, that is very true. But I don't think that we'll be in this unchangeable place where nothing ever new is learned. Jesus said that when a sinner repents, there is great what in heaven? Great rejoicing. The angels rejoice in heaven when a sinner repents. Well, the angels in a perfect place, created perfectly, in a place of perfect joy and great satisfaction, if a sinner repents, Jesus says, well, there's room in heaven for a little bit more joy. They additionally rejoice. Peter says that the angels long to look over you know, the, the, the banner of heaven to try to understand this thing called salvation, and they just really don't get it. So, again, perfect beings in a perfect place don't have full and unending understanding of everything. Look back at Ephesians, if you're still there. Verse 7. But God, being rich in mercy, raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him. Verse 7. He did this to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, there's volumes of theology in that one verse. What does it mean that God wants to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of His grace? What I think that might mean is your story of coming to faith and trust in Jesus is uniquely yours. The way that God has written your, the story of your life is yours. Well, it's actually God's. He wrote it. But you've lived it. And it's different than anybody else's. And within your story are marvelous expressions of God's grace, the wealth of His kindness toward you to bring you to faith, to give you faith, to give you eternal life. When we get... He says that God has done this to demonstrate, to proclaim, to tell the coming ages of what He has done. I see this scene in heaven. When we arrive, God's going to tell His story about us. And it doesn't reveal, oh, how smart you were to choose Christ. It wasn't, it's not going to reveal, oh, the greatness of what you accomplished. It's going to reveal the greatness of God's grace and His kindness to subsequent generations in the ages. It will be ongoing. 
And so what will the people who are already there, how will they react to this information? They will worship. They will worship. Because they didn't know what happened in your life. When you get there, it's not known in heaven. The riches of God's grace expressed in your life. But it will be known because your story, God's story, will be told in heaven. And the people there will see and they'll go, God, you're great, you're wonderful, you're gracious, you're marvelous. Here's another example of it. Well, I get a chance as a resident of heaven now to understand the infinite, eternal, omniscient God a little bit better than I did before. My knowledge of God will increase. My understanding of His grace and His kindness toward us will increase. It will be ongoing, and it will never end. We will be on an eternal course of study of who God is and what He has done and how He has done it and His outworking of grace and kindness. And the more we understand, the more we'll be prone to worship. And and then we'll understand more. We'll never be in a static position of unchanging full knowledge. I don't believe we'll ever be there. But you can think about it. You can ponder it. You can wonder. Two hundred years ago, uh, a hymn writer penned... I was, I was going to get back to a verse. You were going to remind me. John 14.1, do not let your heart be troubled. I didn't circle around first, and I thank you for the reminder. Don't let your heart be troubled. I must go. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, mansions, rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus, you'll know in John's gospel, in chapter 2, cleansed the temple. He went into the temple and he saw money changers, tables set up, and he did what is called cleansing the temple. He, he scattered, he took the merchants out and, and cleansed, as it were, brought it back to a place of, of honor. And he was challenged by the authorities. Show us a sign to prove your authority. By what authority do you do this? And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it again. And they said, what are you talking about? This place has been under construction for 46 years, and you're going to level it and raise it in three days? Then John adds parenthetically, he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus made a comparison, an association, an identification between the physical temple and his own body. And it was called my father's house. Jesus said, my father's house will not be, should not be, will not be a marketplace, will not be a place for buyers and sellers, but a place of prayer. So the same word, father's house, Jesus made an identification with his own, his own body, his own self, his own person. Put that interpretation in John 14, 1. In my father's house, in my existence, in me, there are many dwelling places, many, many rooms, many... The word that he uses there is for a place of permanent residence, not temporal passing through, not just a tent, not just an abode, but a place for permanent residence. In me, there are places of permanent residence, and, I prepare a, and I'm preparing that for you. The Apostle Paul would explain this as adoption. We were adopted into his family. There was a place in God's family for us, for anyone 
that may be, just parenthetically, a way of re-looking at John 14.1, that he's not necessarily talking about heaven, but anticipating the coming of the Holy Spirit to baptize his followers and saying, in me, there is a place for everyone to have permanent residence. What a glorious, glorious thought that is. The hymn writer, 200 years ago, made these wonderful statements. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious through the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of lords, who over all doth reign, who once on earth the incarnate word for ransomed sinners slain, now lives in realms of light where saints and angels sing their songs before him day and night for God, Redeemer, King. Crown him the Lord of heaven, enthroned in worlds above. Crown him the King to whom is given the wondrous name of love. Crown him with many crowns as thro thrones before him fall. Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. That's my king. That's my king. He ascended to give life to his followers on earth and to prepare a way of permanent dwelling with him on high. How glorious our future. God in heaven, Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the promise that we have. Thank you for the work that your son accomplished on earth. Thank you for his obedience to, to die, to be buried, to rise, and to ascend to you. Thank you for accomplishing your perfect will. Thank you for your providential work on our behalf that we're included in your program, that we're included in the salvation that you have offered and have sought Thank you that we have a Redeemer King that we will forever bow before, ever worship, ever understand in increasing ways. Thank you that we have not been left as orphans, that we are not isolated, that we are not troubled, we are not beseeched with anxiety, but we are comforted by the fact that Christ is in us and we are in him as he is in you. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.